Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brant. And this episode, we are going to talk about SST-19, the Meat Puppets record, Meat Puppets 2. Yeah. And it's been a while since we, yeah, it's been a while since we spoke about the Meat Puppets. We went, we had the first album a few episodes ago, feels like about 10 episodes ago. I can't recall exactly, but it's been a while. And the first one was, it's a bit of a difficult album to get into if it's the first time you ever hear the Meat Puppets except it appears if you were actually around back then because Meat Puppets, the first album, has a big, big following from people who heard it for the first time in the early 80s. Meat Puppets 2 is a major shift change, and we'll get into that in a minute. But I want to mention one other thing, Brant, because I was thinking about the first Meat Puppets episode, and you were talking about Kirk Kirkwood's uh, solo album, Snow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was out digging through the cheap CD bins the other day, and I picked that one up. And that is a good recommendation. Yeah, it's really good. You know, Meat Puppets, they were they got really famous for a while, well, I guess as famous as they ever got for a moment there when Nirvana kind of pumped them up during the Unplugged and stuff like that. And when I go through the CD stores now, there's the great thing about the Meat Puppets is you can buy a lot of their catalog cheap on used CDs. So hmm. And you know what I like about CDs? They're cheap, they and they still play music, and yeah. people are getting rid of them. It's, I mean, when I first started buying CDs, as with most people, they were like, it would, it would be like 30 bucks to buy anything that was cool 20-some years ago, and now people are just giving them away, and I'm happy to pick them up. So that yeah. was a great find. I buy CDs all the time, and some of this stuff, I mean, I doubt, I, I don't think Snow actually came out on vinyl. For a while, there wasn't a lot of labels putting vinyl out, and uh, I actually have a, uh, a correction, a Meat Puppets-related correction I was thinking about. I believe on the last Meat Puppets episode, I mentioned that they have released three albums since they kind of reformed, and I was mistaken. It's four, four albums. Reformed, like with um, Chris and Kurt yeah. back together? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I bought a used um, LP, Meat Puppets, a reformed one, I think. Uh, I haven't actually listened to it yet. I bought it kind of the same day I was digging through the, the cheap CD bins and bought this Kirkwood one. I bought a Meat Puppets record on vinyl called Lollipop. Is yeah. that one of those four? Yeah. So I haven't heard that one. Is that one any good to you? Yeah, they're, all four of them are really good. That one's good. Yeah. Cool. Well, with that, you want to take us to school on Meat Puppets 2, Brent? I'll do my best. <laughs> History lesson, part one. I mean, obviously you can't talk about, you You kind of already referenced it, but you can't talk about Meat Puppets 2 without referencing MTV Unplugged. Most people, or not most people, I would say a lot of people, that was their introduction to the Meat Puppets. It certainly was mine. And uh, I'd be curious to know how many people bought Meat Puppets 2 and what their impression of it was, you know, that... After they heard Nirvana. Yeah. Yeah. It was when I heard about, like, when I really think hard about it. I'm sure I had compilations back around that time that had Meat Puppets on it. But when I, if I'm being really, really truthful, I'm pretty sure that's about the first time where the name sunk in is watching that Nirvana show. And that's when I came up. I didn't actually buy Meat Puppets 2 until way later. But I I think you're probably right. Some people who would have heard, uh, what was the, the songs were Plateau and Lake of Fire. And maybe there was a third one that they did and if they heard the meat puppets 2 record i bet you they would have been a bit surprised yeah oh me was the third one so uh, i looked it up mtv unplugged their nirvana one was recorded on november 18th 1993 and kurt cobain died five months later and i I remember uh, when he died quite clearly they played that mtv unplugged on a constant loop and uh, so lots of people saw it and about a year after that in 1994 the meat puppets had 
an album called Backwater, or sorry, an album called Too High to Die, and a track on it called Backwater made it to number 47 on the Billboard Hot 100. So that's the closest they've come to kind of a hit single. Too High to Die is probably one of the ones that you see most often in the CD racks over the years, right? I'm sure it's their highest selling album by by a long shot. And uh, the taping of that show happened while the Meat Puppets were on tour with Nirvana, actually. There's also a re-recording, it's kind of a hidden track on Too High to Die of Lake of Fire. Yeah, well they played like the, the late night TV show circuit I guess when Too High to Die came out and they played Lake of Fire like a a really amplified distorted version on a couple of shows like I think they played it on like Jon Stewart or something like I can't remember what was around back then but they were definitely riding the wave the yeah the version on Too High to Die is closer to the to the Nirvana version for sure. Uh, but back when when Meat Puppets Two first came out, um, this was coincided with a time when I would say like more of a college crowd was coming into the into the scene. You know, you started having more college radio stations. It came out you know around the same time as uh, like say Zen Arcade and Double Nickels on the Dime and Let It Be. And you often hear that it was maybe at the time a bit overshadowed by those albums as far as critical acclaim goes uh but i i think it got its fair share uh, of acclaim and it definitely is deserved in my opinion it's the start of it is the start of the meat puppets that i like uh after we did the first record it kind of felt like i was a bit hard on it and uh and i mean on the podcast i felt like i was a bit hard on it and i went back and listened to it again and it's it just is not something i'm gonna go back to as much as meat puppets two or the later records meat puppets one is just kind of stands out it's interesting interesting uh, a lot of people love it but meat puppets start with meat puppets 2 for me same yeah so um a lot changed obviously from meat puppets 1 to meat puppets 2 one of the big biggest changes is kurt is writing all the songs this time he tells a story in i think it's in the greg prado book too high to die which is excellent um he tells a story about it it was halloween and uh, everyone goes out to a party and he d- he didn't want to go and so he stays home drops some acid and he writes lake of fire and magic toy missing and uh you know no one would be surprised to hear that he was dropping acid they were doing tons of acid around this time and also uh, according to the band snorting lots of mdma which is ecstasy and uh really starting like to uh let their influences shine through more i would say like their uh kurt lists a bunch of their influences and he says like Hank Williams, Neil Young, George Jones, uh, The Grateful Dead, obviously. And uh, everyone always talks about this album being like a country album. I guess it is. I never really thought of it in those terms until I actually sat down to like really, I guess, study it for this podcast. And you can definitely hear there's a lot of uh, stuff taken from from country music. Some of, Especially some of the guitar picking and the rhythms, they definitely reference some old-timey country-sounding songs, you know, for sure. But they make it their own i've when i read about this record and in the book too um, and the liner notes to the re-release the Ryko one they always talk about it as being kind of desert music which i think fits as well yeah definitely and i mean there's also you can catch you know Derek bostrom in particular is quite open about it he feels that sst was not feeling you know feeling the country stuff <laughs> <laughs> And that's uh, it. you know that's interesting that's interesting though because there are there are country elements I wouldn't call it a country record and I I I had understood that you know Greg Ginn and some of the other SST folks really like classic rock and the Grateful Dead and stuff like that and you can you can access Meat Puppets too through classic rock elements as well. Oh absolutely I mean uh referencing again 
that I think I spoke about it in a previous podcast, that uh, interview that Joe Carducci and Mugger did on FM at WFMU, uh, they say like, you know, they didn't consider SST a hardcore label. Joe says we were into music before punk and yeah. uh, I, you know, most of those guys grew up on classic rock for sure. Yeah. And they were all deadheads. So when I was reading up on this too, another theme that comes out is how Meat Puppets 2 was kind of a reaction to the hardcore scene. Oh, definitely. Definitely. There's another quote I really liked about the Meat Puppets that uh, I'm not sure it might've been Michael Azarad. Did he do the liner notes to the CD reissue? Pretty sure he did. He's one of, he's one of the guys who yeah. did it. There's three or four. But Azarad uh, gets the first one, and his is the lengthiest. Yeah, I, th- I think it's that's where I read it. But he says something to the effect of, you know, the Meat Puppets liked punk rock, but they weren't they weren't really punks, you know. And I well, think you know that's a lot of the SST bands, like you know, ended up playing in the hardcore scene. Like we're going to be getting to St. Vitus pretty soon. And I mean, they were an odd band for their time, you know, in LA for sure, because it was all, all the metal bands were like hair metal bands. So they kind of got adopted into this punk scene, but they weren't punks. The punk scene was pretty close-minded at that time. So at this time with the, with the Meat Puppets and Husker Du, we're starting to get into like the college kids coming into the scene, which is a good thing. Yeah. I'm just looking at Azarad's notes. He does mention that concept a couple of times talking about how, how the Meat Puppets 2 is a kind of a, a redefinition of what it means to be punk. And they were they were being punk um, in with respect to what it meant to them to be punk, which was to challenge the uh, the supposedly anything goes punk, where you know hardcore started to become pretty you know pretty rigorous. Um, there were rules, certain things, um, and he says, you know, Meat Puppets 2 uh, was consciously intended to put some distance between the band and hardcore, but that didn't mean it wasn't punk. Yeah. It was, it's definitely a punk album, but Meat Puppets version of punk for that time. And, you know, that actually rings true with a lot of what you hear Mike Watt say, too, about what it meant to be punk back then. Yeah. So they recorded the album with Spot in three sessions, uh, instruments, vocals, and then they mixed it all at Total Axis in Redondo Beach. And they started recording it in March 83, mixed it in November 83, so quite a while after they they finished recording it. And uh, the album doesn't come out until April of 84, so almost a full year after they start recording it. And the band talks about that a lot. It was kind of, you know start of maybe a, I don't know if a rift between them and the label but uh, there's a Derek Bostrom quote in the book Too High to Die I'm gonna gonna read we felt that this was our first inkling that how you're going to manage your label relationship to make sure you get what you want you can't count on anybody else but yourself to do what's best for you and the way that SST who were a little weary about putting out this country rock crap on their punk rock label started to throw a wedge in it so they were definitely i think resentful at the time that it took so long uh for it to come out i think that probably had more to do with finance finances than anything else like SST was constantly strapped for cash in the early days and way more ambitious than their uh pocketbooks really allowed yeah it wasn't until several several years later when they were selling enough records to put out as much as they wanted to and then it just kind of went a little bit overboard but right you're absolutely right this is this is a constant story yeah at this at this time on sst where people are a bit cranky about how long it takes for stuff to come out and greg Ginn had black flag and keeping the label afloat as a priority and he would put out the other band's releases as soon as he could but it took some time sometimes yeah and uh adding to that fuel to that maybe a little bit of a conflict 
Conflict vibe uh, was in 84 on the My War tour with Meat Puppets went out with Nig Heist and Flag. It must have been a pretty challenging tour for everybody. Flag is slowing down at this point. The Pops had long hair and were playing this psychedelic country shit and Nig Heist being, you know, super obscene and confrontational. Some of those shows must have been pretty hard to get through. And to add fuel to the fire, um, Rolling Stone gave uh, Meat Puppets 2 a four-star review and again, Derek Bostrom in particular talks a lot about um, there was some pretty open open conflict about that. You know, you'd think they would be happy about a band on their label getting that kind of attention, but I think there was some resentment from the Black Flag camp is basically the insinuation. We should uh, move on to talk about the album. Okay, well let's let's turn to the release itself then. History Lesson Part 2 They actually made a video for this. Did you know that? For the album? They made a video for the album? For a song on the album. New Gods. Oh, for for a song on it? Which song? New Gods. New Gods. Okay, no, I didn't. Is that up on YouTube? You bet. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It was a bit dangerous when you go down a, a YouTube video wormhole, though. That yeah. would be a good one to go to. It's interesting, SST in the mid-80s, I don't know if it was actually SST, but I put money behind it, but definitely some SST bands put out videos. Like there's, on YouTube, you can see a Minuteman video and, and stuff like that. Um, there's definitely some some Black Flag ones later on, Black Flag ones, but even TV Party Tonight, there was a video for it. Yeah, Rise Above, I think. Yeah, I've never seen that one. It might have been, been one of those Target videos, you know? Oh, yeah. Hey, Ryan, what about the cover? I'm, Want to talk about the cover? Yeah, let's turn to the cover. It is um, another painting. Yep. The first, well, wasn't the first album collage art? So this one is a painting now. Yeah, we're going to get into mostly art by the brothers now. Kurt painted this one. Chris says he painted in about one minute while smoking pot in their mom's bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I always kind of thought it looked and, like a wolf or a fox or something to me. Yeah, well, almost like a bent over devil to me anyways, yeah. with horns kind of. Yep. It's kind of a goat, but also it's mentioned in that book as well. Definitely some Picasso elements like in the sky there, yep. taking some inspiration there. It's kind of, you know, SST albums, there's a fair amount in the early days that are paintings actually. Yeah. Like there's we had a Minuteman album that was a painting and there's this one lots of artwork not just uh you know some of this stuff was just as unique to look at as it was to listen to back then some phoenix dude calling himself anvil Blockhammer took the back cover silhouette pick which i've always really liked uh the original sst vinyl doesn't have anything the cd remaster uh doesn't have except mine anyways has a pretty cool insert one side of it is it's a collage of everything that's come out up until this point on the label uh, including a bunch of covers of Raymond Pettibone, I guess, books. I'm assuming these were like zines. Yeah, he put out zines that the label actually sold through the catalog. Like Captive Chains was yeah. probably the most well-known one back then. And then the other the other side of it is the merchandising concept. And it's got uh, it's got all kinds of stuff. You can get posters, stickers, lots of t-shirts, a whole bunch of Raymond Pettibone books. Interesting when we get to uh, Black Flag the first four years, but it's only listed on cassette here. So I'm wondering if that didn't come out on LP at the time. That may not have. I mean, SST put out a lot of cassette-only concepts compilations and maybe that's what that was originally yeah i know uh black flag live in 84 was cassette only at first it's never come out on, they... it's never come out on vinyl as far as i know yeah mine mine was on cd and i paid a ton for it way back when yeah and you can get a black flag my war lyrics booklet all kinds of stuff it's pretty cool so that's just an sst promo insert 
Yeah. Not a, a like a meat puppets insert. No, no. The Pettibone books are Captive Chains, Asbestos, yeah, A New Wave of Violence, Tripping Corpse, Freud's Universe, My Struggle for Life After Death, Virgin Fears, Capricus Missives, Tripping Corpse, Other Christs. Oh, sorry, Tripping Corpse 2 and 3. Yeah, Tripping Corpse and Captive Chains, I think, were series, zines yeah. that he put out. There's a there's a few books that you can buy now that collect some or all of those zines from back. What about you mentioned where Me Puppets Two was recorded? Yep. Um, did we mention who recorded it? Uh, yeah, engineered by Spot. Oh, he was did, it again? Okay. Pretty sure he did all the early Meat Puppet stuff. Okay, because it's a good. I was just gonna remark that it's a clean sounding record. Oh yeah. There's not really there's not really much distortion on it at all. Fair amount of overdubs too, which you don't hear a lot of on early SST stuff. It was usually so econo. Yeah. Like multi-tracking well, the guitars, for example. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just gonna say, I mean, Kurt is re even on the first record, you can tell this guy can play guitar. On this record, you can hear that, and not just because of the overdubs, but the use of the overdubs demonstrates to me anyways that this guy is really exploring you know, his abilities right in the studio as well what i kept thinking about was keith richards and and uh, ron wood have this thing they call the ancient art of weaving where they play together they're both playing totally different things but they kind of weave it all together and i would say uh kurt kirkwood does that if you listen to uh you know some of the songs have like almost a bluegrass uh, like flat picking kind of thing going like acoustic guitar on an acoustic guitar and he's like soloing over top of it and it just sounds unbelievable especially back then yeah. on this label and some of the it other stuff out. some of the other stuff i mean if you listen to like new gods for example you can you can hear mud honey for sure like it sounds like he's using a big muff. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you think about this record in context in 1984, we mentioned it earlier on in our podcasts about the types of like the big records that came out that year. Put this album in context with Zen Arcade by Husker Du, Double Nickels by The Minutemen, Let It Be by The Replacements, and you put like this one. There are a lot of people out there, I think, big Me Puppets fan that would say that this stands up against those records as well. It does for me. It's uh, there's three instrumentals on it, which is cool. Uh, yeah, it's I, I mean for me, it's got a little bit of everything. It's got some punk rock. It's got some country. It's got uh, lots of psych psychedelic rock. We should probably check if there's run runoff grooves. Yeah, let's check and see if there's runoff grooves. I just have a CD. Hold on. Unfortunately. Oh yeah, and uh, as I'm pulling it out here, the uh, lyric sheet is on the like on the sleeve. It's printed on the sleeve. It's not a separate sheet. Oh okay. Yeah. Let's see here. Side one in the lap of the gods. Side two and in the hands of SST. Little Sh and then there's another one that says little Schumer's courtesy of Ampax Core and Otari Core. I don't know what that is. They're pretty hard to read sometimes, those run-out grooves. Yeah. And when you read them for the first time, if you don't have the right emphasis or meaning behind it, they can be even less hard to, or uh, even harder to decipher, I should say. In the lap of the gods and in the hands of SST. There you go. Interesting. You want to do the ballot result? I think it is time. Ballot result. What do you like off of this one? Well, 
I know we're on the ballot result and it just I wanted to ask you this before actually in the podcast but I gotta do it now because I like a lot of songs on this record my favorite song is Lake of Fire that's the one I would pick I can't help but pick it but I also can't help but think of Nirvana when I think of that song and I wanted to ask you I think I know the answer but do you like Nirvana? No I uh I mean I guess I did kind of at the time but I, I, I mean I don't own anything by them if I was gonna listen to anything it would be Bleach I guess I don't I don't own any Nirvana albums I, I never listened to them I'm not sure why it has nothing to do with them being popular or anything like that i listen to all kinds of popular music um yeah i don't really have an answer to why i guess i just don't yeah i'm almost exactly the same and i kind of i seem to recall talking with you about this but you know 15 years ago or something but it just occurred to me when i was thinking about it that i don't really know why either but i would say exactly the same thing i actually bought nevermind when it came out like right when it did right (laughs) yeah right when it came out i bought it and i devoured it and then i got burnt on it and I got burnt on Nirvana. I bought Bleach shortly after. I bought uh, Nevermind and if I were to go back and listen to them I would go and listen to Bleach for sure. I'm also a big Steve Albini fan not just his bands but also his production and so I do like the production on In Utero I've listened to that one now and then over the years but I'm kind of the same like so it I just feel anyways we got to get to the, the ballot result but it just occurred to me that I feel a bit conflicted when Lake of Fire is my favorite I think I can like it without thinking about Nirvana but it's really hard not to yeah not for me I mean for me, the Meat Puppets version blows the Nirvana version out of the water. And, you know, from the first time I heard it, it was like erased any memory of the Nirvana version for me. So I have no problem yeah. putting it in. I mean, it's the most famous track off the album and probably for good reason. I mean, I'm, I want to say we'd probably be picking it if Nirvana never covered the Meat Puppets, you know? Yeah, If well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I do think that Nirvana covering it and making it so popular, it, it informs or at least is part of the reason that I sought out the original at some point, right? And when I listened to it, I was like, that is a really good tune. And also Plateau, great song. Um, When I was listening to this record, there are so many other songs uh, I really like the intro, Aurora Borealis. I like the whistling song. New Gods is great, but I don't know. My pick would be Lake of Fire, but you're the Meat Puppets guy. What, would, what do you want to pick? Lost is really good, too. I mean, Is that your you pick? Know, the Minutemen cover it cover it for god's sake no i know <laughs> no i was gonna i was gonna say lake of fire really i mean to okay. me it's to me it's the best best track and as i say i think we'd be picking it if the whole nirvana thing never happened so i agree you know i i kind of wonder though next time i'm digging through the cheap cd bin maybe i'm gonna pick up a copy of bleach and give that a listen it's got to be over 10 maybe 15 years since i've listened to it and it's got you know it's a good old sub pop record doesn't with Dale Crover play Mel- on it? Well, yeah, with the Melvins connection. I'm pretty sure Jack and Dino produced it. I just, I really, like I bought it way, way back. And then I just cast off everything Nirvana, like within a year. I devoured it and cast it off and never went back. Yeah, it's probably so, the same for me. I think I'm going to check out Bleach next time I see it in the cheap CD bin. I bet you there's a few dozen there. I bet there is. What do we have next week, Ryan? Next week? Oh, man. Husker Du, Metal Circus. Oh, that'll be a good one. Oh, man. Okay. My right. hair is sta- the hair on my arms is standing up, just saying Husker Du Metal Circus. That's how much that record means to me. It's a good one. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. 